It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. The ogre awoke in a groggy haze as the clock struck midnight. It didn't matter how much wine he drank at dinner, that blasted chime never failed to rouse him from his slumber. He turned over and tried to go back to sleep, but it was no use. Now that he was awake, his mind was racing with thoughts of how much work he had to do in the morning. He reminded himself to never host a dinner party again. It was hard enough to rustle up enough food to feed himself, let alone his wife and seven daughters. Luckily, a scrumptious meal had wandered into his house just a few hours earlier. Those seven human boys would make quite the feast, but the ogre couldn't stop thinking about how vexing it would be to slaughter them in the morning. He could picture himself running around the house, scrambling to grab the slippery little brats as they tried to flee. No, it would be better to get it over with now, while they were sleeping, then he could rest easy, having checked off that particular task from his to-do list. The ogre struggled out of bed, groaning from the wine-induced headache that was beginning to set in. After grabbing a large knife from the kitchen, he lumbered down the hallway and entered the room where the young humans were sleeping. Fumbling in the dark, the ogre squinted between the room's two large beds. The boys' sleeping caps stuck out from under one comforter, the golden crowns adorning his daughter's heads peeked out from the other. The ogre didn't know why he let his wife dress their children in such finery, but this night he was grateful for her quirks. The glint from the crowns saved him the tiresome task of lighting a candle to discern which bed the human children were in. Without a second glance, he drew his knife and slit the sleeping boy's necks one by one. The ogre didn't know it yet, but he had just killed his own children. Welcome to Mythical Monsters, a ParCast original. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Every week, we dive into history's most legendary monsters. In telling their stories, we hope to shed light on some truths hidden behind the creations of these beasts, where they come from, what they symbolize, and how they expose humanity's greatest fears. You can find episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Mythical Monsters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. 
At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Today, we're discussing one of the most iconic fairy tale monsters, the ogre. Not to be mistaken for giants, ogres are traditionally depicted as bloodthirsty, ugly, man-like creatures who feast on little children. In this episode, we'll look at these terrifying beasts through the lens of the story Little Thumb, one of the first tales to feature an ogre as its villain. On the surface, ogres may seem like one-dimensional creatures who exist only to prey on children and feast on their bones. But as the movie Shrek so eloquently put it, ogres have layers. And while this line may have been in reference to the titular character's moral complexities, it also applies to the various roles ogres have played in mythology. As we'll see in the story of Little Thumb, ogres can be much more than child-hunting monstrosities. They function as an effective storytelling device that raises the stakes of any tale in which they appear. Ogres are avatars of our greatest anxieties and reflect society's deepest ills. Ogre-like creatures have appeared in stories dating as far back as the Epic of Gilgamesh in the 18th century BCE. But the word ogre itself first appeared in Chrétien de Troyes' 12th century French epic, Percival, or the Story of the Grail. It was only a passing reference, which translates in English to, and it is written that he will come again to all the realms of Logres, known as the land of ogres, and destroy them with that lance. In this instance, Logres is thought to be a reference to the land of King Arthur. According to Geoffrey of Monmouth's 1136 pseudo-historical The History of Kings of Britain, before humans settled the land, England was ruled by an evil giant named Gogmagog. However, perhaps due to Gogmagog's incompatibility in the rhyme scheme, Chrétien de Troyes called this race of giants ogres. With their stout builds and prodigious heights, ogres present a formidable physical challenge to any hero. They have a human-like appearance, but their dirty hair, sharp teeth, and foul skin make them truly monstrous, as does their unrelenting appetite for human flesh. While their appearance and behavior is fairly consistent, the etymology of the word ogre itself is under some dispute. Some think it was derived from a Roman god of the underworld named Orcus. Generally depicted as a hairy, hulking giant, Orcus would certainly fit the traditional visualization of an ogre. But then again, the word could have originated from the biblical og, last of the giants. There is also a theory that the term derives from the French word for Hungarians. Once the word ogre first appeared in Monmouth's text, these creatures began featuring in fairy tales. It's nearly impossible to know whether or not the term ogre was used in these oral traditions, but in Giambattista Basile's 1634 Italian compendium, The Tale of Tales, there are several stories featuring ogreish creatures called orcos. 
The word ogre itself became entrenched in fairy tale canon when it appeared in Charles Perrault's 1697 anthology, Tales of Mother Goose. This book included two stories that featured a villainous ogre, Puss in Boots, and Little Thumb. Today, we'll be using the latter tale as we dive into one of the vilest and perhaps misunderstood monsters of lore. Long, long ago, in a deep, dark forest, there lived a woodcutter named Pierre. His wife, Louise, loved children, and over the course of three years, she and Pierre had three sets of twins, all boys. As the fourth year dawned, Louise was pregnant once again, but this time she had only a single, tiny child. They named him Tom but his small size earned him the nickname Little Thumb. Life in the forest was hard. Woodcutting was a low-paying, back-breaking profession. With his seven sons still too young to pitch in, Pierre was forced to venture into the forest for days at a time. When he did finally make it home, he was always tired and irritated, and he took his anger out on his youngest son. Whenever something went wrong, Pierre blamed Little Thumb. It didn't matter if he was at fault or not. Pierre found a way to shift the responsibility on the diminutive child. And Thumb's siblings were quite content to let him take the brunt of their father's wrath. They stayed as far away from Little Thumb as possible, frightened that any association with him would attract Pierre's ire and Louise never stepped in to protect her son, either. He may have lived in a house with eight other people, but for the first seven years of his life, Little Thumb was alone. Just before his eighth birthday, things got even worse for Little Thumb. That year, a great famine spread across the land. No matter how hard Pierre worked, he could barely earn enough money to feed himself and his wife, much less seven hungry sons. Pierre knew that if he and Louise were going to make it through the winter, they'd have to take drastic action. While this story may have been a fairy tale, the famine described in Little Thumb was very much based in reality. In 1692, five years before Charles Perrault published Mother Goose, France suffered one of the worst famines in its history. Conditions were so dire that between 1692 and 1694, some 2.8 million French citizens starved to death, a full 15% of its population. The severity of the situation was captured in grim detail by an official in the town of Beauvais. He said that his district was packed with an infinite number of poor souls weak from hunger and dying from want. Seeking to prolong their lives a little, these poor folk eat such unclean things as cats and the flesh of horses flayed and cast onto dung heap. Others consume the blood that flows when cows and oxen are slaughtered and the offal that cooks throw in the street. Other poor wretches eat nettles and weeds or roots and herbs which they boil in water. 
Although the famine had subsided by the time Perrault published his fairy tale compendium in 1697, memories from this time of hardship would have been fresh in people's minds as they read the tale of Little Thumb. They would have sympathized with Pierre and Louise's struggle to put food on the table, and maybe they would have understood the monsters the woodcutter and his wife had to become. One night, Pierre and Louise stayed up late, talking in low, worried tones. If nothing changed, they would all starve to death. Their sons were too young to work, and if they did go out into the forest with Pierre, the energy they expended to cut the trees would be greater than the firewood they'd be able to collect. Louise couldn't risk leaving the children alone in search of work either. Hearing his parents murmuring, Little Thumb slipped out of bed so he could listen in. For the past seven years, he had learned to use his small size to his advantage. With Pierre looking to take his frustrations out on Little Thumb at every turn, the little boy had become adept at escaping his family's notice. As his parents continued to fret, Little Thumb tiptoed across the room and hid underneath a stool at the foot of their bed. What his father said next made Little Thumb's blood run cold. My dear Louise, I can think of only one solution. If we do nothing, both we and the boys will starve to death. But maybe we can give them a fighting chance. Tomorrow, I shall abandon them in the woods. Their chances are slim, yes, but if they stay here, they will surely die. Better for them to have a quick death from the wolves than to slowly starve under our roof. Louise let out a shocked gasp. How could you even say such a thing, Pierre? There are children. I'd rather die than abandon them. Pierre stayed silent for a long moment before he finally replied, his voice full of quiet resignation. I cannot stand the thought of it either, my love, but I also cannot stand the thought of our children wasting away in front of our very eyes. I know it's cruel, but there is no magic cure for our ills. Maybe, just maybe, they'll find a way to survive out there in the forest. Louise was silent for a long time. When she finally spoke, her tone was one of agreement. I wish it weren't so, but you speak the truth, husband. Do as you must. Little Thumb couldn't believe what he was hearing. He knew his father was capable of great cruelty, but never thought for an instant that his mother would consent to such a callous act. And yet, she had agreed to the plan. However, Little Thumb wouldn't let them abandon him and his brothers so easily. Once his parents had drifted off to sleep, Little Thumb crept into the kitchen. Careful not to make a sound, he quietly lifted the lid from the bread basket. All that remained was one stale, moldy loaf of pumpernickel bread. Little Thumb tore a piece from the end. 
It took all of his will not to take a bite. He was so hungry, but he stowed the bread in his pocket. He needed it for his plan. The next morning, Pierre woke the boys at the crack of dawn. When he told them they were finally going to accompany him into the forest for work, they couldn't shed their blankets fast enough. Little Thumb hadn't revealed to his brothers what he had heard the night before. He knew they wouldn't have believed him. And even if they did, one of the brothers would have surely gone to their parents. Pierre would have confiscated the piece of bread and Little Thumb's plan would have failed. As much as he hated keeping this terrible secret from his brothers, he reasoned it was the only way to keep them all safe. As Pierre led his sons deep into the woods, Little Thumb hovered at the back of the group. He reached into his pocket and pulled out the piece of bread, tearing it into pieces in his hands and leaving a trail of crumbs behind him. He hoped that his parents would regret abandoning their children and would be happy to see the boys return. After what seemed like hours, Pierre finally stopped in a dense thicket. He told them to stay there and gather wood while he went off to chop a tree. The boys set eagerly to their task as Pierre disappeared into the forest. But Little Thumb knew better. While his brothers worked, Little Thumb went to check on his breadcrumb trail. But just a few paces into the woods, the trail suddenly disappeared. A little sparrow hopped towards him, eating the crumbs as it went. Little Thumb's heart sank as he processed what he was seeing. There was no trail back to their home. His plan had failed. Coming up, Little Thumb and his brothers find shelter, but their host turns out to be deadlier than any beast in the forest. Now, back to the story. Little Thumb was devastated. He had been so sure that his breadcrumb trail would lead him and his brothers safely home. But now that it was gone, it would be next to impossible to find their way back. And night was closing in. However, Little Thumb refused to give up. He climbed the tall tree in the thicket near where his brothers slept. The ascent was arduous. Little Thumb had to stretch his tiny limbs to reach the distant branches. The wind picked up, blowing so forcefully that the thick trunk began to sway back and forth. Stealing himself against the elements, Little Thumb continued to climb. He had let down his brothers once already. He was determined to never do it again. Finally, after several close calls and many splinters, Little Thumb emerged into the open sky. Clinging onto the top of the tree for dear life, he surveyed the landscape. As the sun set over the treetops, all Little Thumb could see was endless forest for miles on end. There was no sign of any place they could find shelter. Just as he was about to start climbing down, Little Thumb spotted a faint light in the distance. 
He didn't know whether it was from his family home, a traveler's campfire, or even a witch's cabin. It didn't matter. If Little Thumb and his brothers stayed where they were, they would surely perish. Getting to that light was the only chance they had at surviving. The six other boys were understandably afraid. Some of them refused to accept the fact that their father would abandon them in such a cruel manner. But as the night sky descended on their thicket, Little Thumb's brothers reluctantly agreed to follow him in search of the light. Getting there was a tall task. With no light to guide them, Little Thumb and his brothers were constantly tripping over roots and smacking their heads on low-hanging branches. With wolves howling in the distance, every rustle of a leaf, every snap of a twig sent them into a panic. Little Thumb tried to put on a brave face. He was just as scared as his big brothers, but he knew that he had to be strong for them. After what seemed like an eternity, Little Thumb spotted the light flickering through the trees. It seeped through the window of a house, not unlike his own. Hopefully, whoever was inside would be more hospitable than the boy's parents. A wave of relief washed over Little Thumb as a kindly-looking woman opened the door. Little Thumb spoke up to her, pleadingly. Kind madam, my brothers and I were abandoned in the woods. We beg you, may we please take shelter in your home, even if it's just for the night? A dark look settled on the woman's brow, and her eyes filled with tears. Truly, I wish you had not come here. Though I am human, my husband is an ogre. He loves nothing more than to eat children. If you stay here, he will devour you. Little Thumb remained unfazed. I'm afraid that we have no choice. If we stay in the woods, the wolves will hunt us down. Better to die here with a full belly than cold and alone in the forest. And perhaps you can convince your husband to take pity on us. The woman sighed in resignation. Once my husband sets his mind to something, he cannot be swayed. I will do my best to hide you from him, but be warned, he has very keen senses. If he sniffs you out, you are doomed to be his supper. With that, she beckoned Little Thumb and his brothers inside. They warmed themselves by the fire and filled their bellies with stew, grateful for the momentary respite. But it wasn't long until their lives were once again at risk. As her husband announced his return home, the kindly woman quickly hid Little Thumb and his brothers under the bed. She shushed for them to be quiet. Stay here and don't make a sound. If you're lucky, he won't notice your presence. The ogre's wife quickly brushed herself off and opened the door. Her giant, hulking husband stood at the threshold, the fire casting flickering light across his cruel, bearded face. With a snarl, he ducked inside and asked for his dinner.
And so we're introduced to the villainous ogre. While Perrault doesn't describe him in any specific terms, George Cruikshank's 1853 illustrations of the story depicts the ogre as a giant, hairy, bug-eyed, razor-toothed abomination. Like most traditional ogres, he is evil, bloodthirsty, and takes great delight in devouring children. But this particular ogre also serves an important purpose. He's the terrifying mirror of Little Thumb's father. This role is not uncommon in fairy tales. For instance, in Hansel and Gretel, the evil witch is a dark reflection of the children's stepmother. But if these monsters are merely extensions of the hero's parents, why include them? Why not just have the parents commit these horrific acts themselves? One reason is that these monsters can go to sadistic depths that a human character simply cannot. Perot's audience would probably understand why Little Thumb's parents would abandon him and his brothers in the woods. In early modern Europe, child abandonment in times of extreme hardship was not uncommon. But cannibalism is another issue altogether. For Little Thumb's parents to eat their children would perhaps be too extreme for even the darkest story. But when it's an ogre who wants to have them for dinner, the situation becomes more acceptable. By having a ravenous monster hunting Little Thumb and his brothers, Perot was able to keep the story within acceptable boundaries, while also raising the stakes. While finding one's way home after getting lost in the woods is an admirable feat, it's nothing compared to trying to save you and your brothers from being eaten alive. Little Thumb tried not to cry out in fear as the ogre lumbered over to the dinner table. Every footfall felt like an earthquake. The towering creature could smash Little Thumb and his brothers like bugs. As the ogre slumped into his chair, Little Thumb watched him sniff the air. The beast perked up. Something had caught his attention. Thinking fast, the ogre's wife poured her husband a goblet of wine and set down a plate piled high with raw, bloody sheep's meat. But it wasn't enough to catch the ogre's attention. I smell fresh meat, he said with a snarl. Why, yes, husband, you're smelling the calf I killed and flayed not an hour ago, his wife cooed in reply. The ogre shook his head. No, it's something else, something far more tantalizing. Moving with surprising alacrity, he heaved himself up from his seat and beelined for the bed. Before Little Thumb and his brothers could even think about making a run for it, the ogre had them in his grasp. The creature roared in anger. Were you trying to hide these morsels from me, woman? If you weren't all skin and bones, I'd throw you on the spit this very instant. If you value your life, you will prepare these children for me to eat at once. With little thumb clutched tightly in his fist, the ogre grabbed a massive knife. But as he moved to cut the boy's throat, the ogre's wife grabbed her husband's arm. My love, we already have enough meat for the night. 
there's still that calf I flayed, as well as another sheep and a half-hog for you to eat. Why not save the children for another occasion? The ogre dropped the knife and nodded his assent. You speak well, wife. Better to keep them fresh for when my brethren come to visit us tomorrow. They will be much pleased to feast on such a delicacy. He handed Little Thumb over to her and sat back at the table. As he tore into his dinner and guzzled wine, his wife put Little Thumb and his brothers to bed. They shared a room with the ogre's daughters, who were already asleep in the bed opposite from the human boys. Wearing delicate gold crowns, the young ogresses looked peaceful, angelic even. But the razor-sharp teeth jutting from their mouths told another story. Little Thumb knew that these little girls would grow up to be just like their bloodthirsty father. The ogre and his wife are not the only parallels to the story's human characters. Just like Pierre and Louise have seven sons, the ogre and his wife have seven daughters. And just as the adult monsters are dark mirrors of their parents, the little ogresses reflect the darkness within their human counterparts. In Perrault's rendition of the story, these young girls take after their brutish father. They possess little gray eyes, round, hooked noses, and very long, sharp teeth. Perrault also makes it clear that while they're not completely evil, they are firmly on the side of darkness. The ogre's daughters, quote, were not overly mischievous, but they showed great promise for it, for they had already bitten little children to suck their blood. Like these monsters in waiting, Little Thumb's brothers are poised to follow in their father's merciless footsteps. Although they're not overtly cruel to their youngest brother, they have been conditioned to let Little Thumb take the brunt of Pierre's abuse. But unlike the young ogresses, Little Thumb's brothers can still be redeemed, and our hero will do everything he can to save them. Despite the late hour, Little Thumb was wide awake. With his death looming, there was no chance he could sleep that night. His mind raced as he tried to think of a way to save his and his brother's lives. As he gazed at the little ogress's golden crowns, he got an idea. Moving swiftly, quietly, Little Thumb slipped out of bed and removed the crowns from the ogre's daughter's heads. Working with great care, he helped his brothers slip off their own sleeping bonnets and placed them on the girls' heads. Once they were securely fastened, he and his brothers donned the golden crowns. They weren't a moment too late. The clock struck midnight just as Little Thumb was climbing back into bed. A moment later, the door to their room swung open. Apparently, the ogre had woken up and decided to get the slaughter over with. Peeking out from under the covers, Little Thumb could see the ogre looking from one bed to the other, the massive knife clutched in his hand. Little Thumb tried to give his terrified brothers a reassuring look, but he knew he was just as frightened as they were. 
the ogre made quick work of his sleeping victims, slicing each of their throats. Little Thumb and his brothers watched the slaughter from the safety of their bed. The ruse had worked. The ogre must have seen the bonnets sticking out from one of the beds and assumed they belonged to the boys. He had no idea that he'd just murdered his own daughters. Without bothering to examine his handiwork, the ogre returned to bed. The moment Little Thumb and his brothers heard the creature's snores echoing in the other room, they sprang into action. Without having to worry about waking the ogre's daughters, the boys were able to open the window. They slipped outside and sprinted into the forest. Little Thumb had no idea where they were going. All he knew was that they had to put as much distance between them and the ogre as possible. Because when he woke up and realized what he had done, he would want revenge. Coming up, Little Thumb and his brothers run for their lives. Now back to the story. After successfully tricking the evil ogre into slaughtering his own daughters, Little Thumb and his brothers desperately fled into the dark forest. As morning dawned, Little Thumb knew it was only a matter of time until the ogre came after them. But for the moment, the ogre was still in bed, fighting off his wine-induced headache. As the morning light filtered into his room, he bade his wife to go upstairs and prepare the boys for cooking. A moment later, he heard her scream. The ogre shot out of bed and rushed to his wife's side. What he saw made his eyes cloud red with rage. Those cursed human boys had tricked him into slaying his beloved daughters with his own hands. He turned to his trembling wife. Bring me my seven-league boots. I will make those little wretches pay for their treachery. Little Thumb breathed hard as he and his brothers fled through the woods. They had run all through the night, barely stopping to rest. As the sun rose and light pierced through the treetops, Little Thumb was surprised to see himself in familiar surroundings. His heart leapt as he realized that they were on a path back to their parents' home. Surely his father and mother wouldn't turn Little Thumb and his brothers away when they found out what had happened to them. Just as Little Thumb was beginning to relax, he heard a thunderous crashing behind him. The ogre had landed on a distant hilltop, crushing the giant trees as if they were nothing more than twigs. In a single bound, the ogre then traversed to another hilltop. He was getting closer. In a matter of moments, he would be upon them. Thinking quickly, Little Thumb ushered his brothers into a small hollow nestled underneath a rocky outcropping. Dirt and pebbles rained down upon them as the ogre's footsteps shook the ground. Then, with a sudden, jarring blast, they heard the ogre land on top of their hiding place. The boys held each other close. Surely, 
this was the end. A long, frightful moment passed as they waited for the ogre to grab them, but then a powerful vibration echoed through their hiding place. Little Thumb recognized the sound from the night before. The ogre was snoring. Little Thumb was shocked. He didn't understand why the ogre would elect to rest right before his moment of triumph. What Little Thumb didn't know was how exhausting Seven League Boots can be on a wearer. The magical items had sensed the ogre's evil intent. While the ogre could still use their power, it came at a great cost. While the boots allow you to run many, many leagues, at the end of your journey, you'll still feel the fatigue from the exertion. Left exhausted from his search, he fell asleep the moment he landed atop the rock. The ogre's snoring deepened as the minutes passed. Little Thumb knew he had to investigate. He crawled out of the hole, shrugging off his brother's desperate attempts to pull him back inside. Emerging into the sunlight, Little Thumb could see the ogre's boots hanging over the side of the rock. They shimmered with a magical aura. Little Thumb didn't know what Seven League boots were, but he deduced that they had bestowed the ogre with the ability to traverse such long distances. Perhaps he could harness their power for himself. Moving quickly, Little Thumb slipped the boots off the ogre's feet. Thankfully, the beast's strength was not restored and he remained in his deep slumber. Once Little Thumb took off the boots, they shrank and shifted. He knew that when he put them on, they would be a perfect fit. Confident that the ogre would continue sleeping, Little Thumb shepherded his brothers from their hiding place. He told them to hurry home. He had one last thing to take care of. Little Thumb was right. The boots conformed perfectly to his feet. He felt a surge of energy as their power coursed through him. Leaving the sleeping ogre behind, he bounded off with long, leaping strides. Within moments, he was back at the monster's doorstep. The ogre's wife was sitting outside, her face streaked with tears. As he approached, she shot him a venomous glare. What do you want, you little cretin? Little Thumb bowed his head. I'm sorry I deceived your husband the way I did, and I'm afraid that I come bearing more bad news. A bloodthirsty gang of thieves has captured your husband. If he doesn't give them all the gold and silver he has, they will kill him. Luckily, I saw the whole thing happen, and he gave me his magic boots so I could communicate the message to you with all haste. Upon hearing this, the woman burst into tears. She ran into the house and emerged with a large sack of coins. I know you must not have much pity for us, but believe me when I say that my husband loved his children dearly. He may seem like a monster to you, but he is still my husband. Please hurry back and give those thieves what they want. She handed Little Thumb the bag and he took off at once. He didn't look back. Despite the wife's moving plea, 
Little Thumb had no regrets about what he had done. His actions were all in the name of survival. And now, with the ogre's wealth in hand, Little Thumb and his family would never want for anything again. When he arrived home, Little Thumb was greeted like a conquering hero. His brothers had safely returned, and the ogre was nowhere to be found. Without his magic boots, Little Thumb figured the evil beast would be wandering the forest for a very long time. Indeed, Little Thumb never saw the ogre or his wife ever again. They were able to live comfortably for the rest of their lives. Soon, the painful experience was nothing more than a distant memory. But that's not necessarily how the story ends. Perhaps fearing Little Thumb would be viewed as too cruel for heaping even more misery onto the ogre's family, Perrault included an alternate ending to this tale. Instead of stealing money from the ogre, Perrault has Little Thumb use the seven-league boots to become the king's personal messenger. Unburdened by the same fatigue that plagued the ogre, Little Thumb is able to make a fortune through this line of work. Rather than succeeding through trickery and deceit, he attains his wealth through hard work and dedication. But regardless of the ending, Little Thumb is able to use his wits to overcome an insurmountable obstacle. In this case, the ogre represents the obstacle of a seemingly unending famine. And while a famine can't be outsmarted, the story shows that with enough determination, a person can outlast even the most dire of circumstances. Through the villainous ogre, Perot was able to represent one of his society's deepest anxieties, a social rather than moral threat. And that ability to represent different societal problems is what has made the ogre such a versatile fairy tale monster. In Little Thumb, the dilemma is how to cope with a devastating famine. In Motorotica, it's the question of whether a son should be blamed for his father's sins. In Shrek, it's the issue of being judged for our outward appearance and not by our inner character. This ability to harness a variety of issues ensures ogres will continue to appear in stories for many years to come. They're so compelling because they remind us that the true monsters don't always lurk in the night. Sometimes they lurk within us. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythical Monsters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythical Monsters on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time.
Mythical Monsters was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, and Carly Madden. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Alex Benedon. I'm Vanessa Richardson.